Jim, uh, you mentioned, I don't even see where Jim is, but, oh, way back there. Uh, you mentioned that the A team was in. Well, I'm the consolation prize. I've, I've heard a half dozen people ask Beverly if she was preaching today. And uh, <laughs> no, you're stuck with me. Uh, I will say this, Beverly hit a grand slam last month at ACU Summit. And if you haven't haven't had the opportunity to listen to that, I would encourage you to go online and do that. It has a lot to do with the things I'm going to be talking about this morning as well. Uh, Again, as I come to you every time, I, I want to say to you from the depths of my heart what it means to this daddy the way that you love my son and his family. And uh, I want you to also know my son and his family love this church. And so we just, we love to be a part of this and, and, and feel that blessing. Uh, so much encouragement, like the encouragement I got right before we began this, this morning when Mark Taylor said to me, don't flub it. I'm not sure he'll ever be accused of being Barnabas, but I, I love Mark Taylor. <laughs> so, so let's go to the text that Josh has given me for today, and we've already heard it read a couple of times, but let's read it one more time, because you're, you're going through this study of Hebrews, and, and this text is from Hebrews chapter 5, and it says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm really glad, and yet I'm somewhat surprised that Josh didn't give me the assignment of talking about Melchizedek this morning, because that guy was just weird, one of the weirdest guys in Scripture. And, And so, I'm grateful that Josh has asked me to zero in on something else within this text. This text that he's given me is in a section of Hebrews where the writer is wanting to emphasize that Jesus is our perfect and great high priest, that he is the one who stands between God and us, and who better to stand between God and us than the one who has the very nature of God and at the same time has the very nature of us. The writer of Hebrews appears to be specifically describing the song we sang just a while ago about the agony that Jesus experienced in Gethsemane. But he's vague enough about it that I think it also just has reference to Jesus' life in general, that Jesus lived a life of suffering, that he lived a life of pain and rejection and grief. All of which, the writer says, perfected him. Now, that's interesting. All of that perfected him. And he's going to use that same terminology about Jesus and being perfected in chapter 12. Let's look what he says there. He says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And so fixing our eyes on our perfect high priest, let's consider this morning our own suffering. Because this is a problem that's 
experienced by all human beings. Suffering. We have that in common, don't we? For most of my adult life, I have struggled with depression. I'm not talking about clinical depression, but just this feeling of a dark cloud over me. And in 2004, I finally made a decision to go to Christian counseling, and it was an incredible thing because just in a few sessions, I was given tools to put in my tool belt that I just hadn't had before. And, And it's been incredible that in the nearly 16 years since then, Uh, I have not had any bouts with depression again, which is an amazing thing because just a few months after I went to that counselor, I was fired from my job a week before Christmas. Isn't that nice? (laughs) And the only reason I was ever given for being fired was that I was in the Word too much. Call me guilty. But hey, I understand it all. It just wasn't a good fit. It's all worked out great for me. But I didn't go through any bouts of depression during that time. I I can't imagine where I would have been if I had not gone to that counselor as I dealt with those things. And then five years later, when our daughter passed away, even though I have grieved her death for nearly 10 years, I still have not gone back into depression. And some of you might be thinking, well, isn't that the same thing? No, if you've ever experienced depression, you know there's a difference between depression and grief. And this and other things that Beverly and I had experienced in common during this time led her not long after our daughter had died, led Beverly to say, I believe God prepared us for this journey. To which our wise son, Josh, said, I believe God prepares all of his children to suffer. Because you see, life between the garden and the garden to come is a path of suffering. It is the consequence of us living in a broken world. Even our perfect high priest, God in flesh, was not immune from this. So, how many of you have seen the classic movie Casablanca? Made back during World War II, starred Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman. What is the famous line from that movie? No, no, that's gone with the wind, sorry. It is, play it again, Sam. Who said that? Humphrey Bogart didn't. Ingrid Bergman didn't. They both said something very close to that, but nobody ever said, play it again, Sam. Okay, how many of you are Star Trek fans? What's the famous line from Star Trek? Beam me up, Scotty. Who said that? In over 79 TV episodes and six movies, nobody ever said, beam me up, Scotty. William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk, said something close to that, but he never said that. Now you know where we're going, don't you? So, any Sherlock Holmes fans here? What's the famous line from Sherlock Holmes? Elementary, my dear Watson. Sorry. 
He never said that. And I'm saying all that to say this. Sometimes something similar happens to us with the Bible. We think God said something that God didn't really say. Sometimes those sayings are close. For instance, how many times have you heard somebody say, God works all things for good to those that love the Lord? It's close, but that's not what he said in Romans 8 and verse 28, and it's not what it means. So here's one I want us to wrestle with a little bit today. God will never give you more than you can handle. I call this sentimental Christianity. This is Hallmark card Christianity. It's offered by people or offered to people who are in pain and suffering, and it's often offered by people who have not experienced what those people are experiencing. And often we say these kinds of things to make us feel better. It's kind of like saying, go be warm and well-fed. It, it makes us feel like we've done something and now we don't have any further obligation. And it seems like useful advice. Unless you're on the receiving end of it. Because while it's long on optimism, it is short on the ability to engage the brokenness of our world. In fact, it can seem more like a taunt than a word of comfort. After all, if God will never give me more than I can bear, and yet I'm feeling crushed and overwhelmed, what's that say about me? And what's that say about my faith? But did God ever say that? Robert Schuller was a, a positive thinking guru from back in the 60s and 70s. And he wrote this book entitled, Tough Times Never Last, But Tough People Do. To which I want to say, uh-uh. And what that title does is it suggests two things. One, it suggests that if we're just tough enough that we can endure. And I'll address that more in just a moment. But the second thing it suggests is that tough times are temporary. Are tough times always temporary? Try telling that to somebody that has a chronic illness or a terminal illness, that it's just temporary. Try telling that to a parent of a handicapped, either mentally or physically handicapped child. It's just temporary. I think a better title would be, Tough Times Seem to Go On Forever, But Weak People Lean on the Lord. And it is nothing short of cruel to go to someone who is already in a vulnerable place and add to their suffering with these human-created platitudes. In fact, this particular platitude, that God will never give you more than you can handle, it is anti-biblical. Because it places the focus in the wrong place. It makes it about what we can bear and what we can do. It's not about you and me. Now, I know someone in here today right now is saying, 
but I know the Bible says that somewhere. Well, here's the verse that they would cite. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. And it says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So what is this verse saying? Or maybe more, what is this verse not saying? Paul's telling us that not sinning is always going to be an option for us. No matter what we're facing. Notice he says when you are tempted. He doesn't say if you are tempted. We're all going to be tempted, as taking, taking one of my wife's sayings, as long as our feet walk dirt, we are going to be tempted. But Paul's saying that we can always escape it. That no Christian can honestly claim, yes, I sinned, but I did not have a choice in the matter. Paul's saying that God will never allow us to be placed in a position in which our only choice is to disobey him. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. We have an enemy that would come with all of his arsenal if God would allow him to. You remember the story of Job? God said, you can go this far and no further. There's always a way out. But there is no way out from suffering until the resurrection. Now, Paul wrote this same church, the Corinthian church. He wrote them another letter. Actually, it's his third letter that he wrote to them. And he said to, this to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Does that sound like a person who's going through more than he can bear? Yeah. And so at no time do we have to be overcome by sin is what Paul's saying. But let me tell you what, there are times in life when we are going to be overwhelmed. Can I have an amen? Yeah. There are things that happen to us that we cannot bear. The death of a child, a divorce, a fatal illness, financial ruin. It's simply the consequences of living in a broken world that is not only in need of redemption, but upon which we are starving for that redemption to come. Now, having said that, while God, I don't believe... Well, let me put it this way. Most of the time, God is not the one responsible for our suffering or for our difficulties. I want to hedge my bet a little bit there. I almost said that he is not, but I want to hedge my bet. God is God, okay? And I know that there's times he does things that I don't understand. 
He allowed Satan to attack Job, even overwhelm him. But I will say this, the vast majority of the suffering in this world should be attributed to Satan. The vast majority of the suffering in this world is because we live in a broken world, a world broken by sin. And we need to be very careful blaming God for it. Listen to what Isaiah said in chapter 5 and verse 20. He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. I would suggest to you when we blame God for something that is dark and ugly, that's exactly what we're doing. And we need to be very careful about that. Blame sin, blame Satan, blame bad choices, but be very careful blaming God because life just, in a broken world, life isn't fair. But God is good. And so a common theme of the psalm seems to be, I just can't take it anymore. Suffering's a given. But here's the irony. Suffering can be a gift. I want you to look at the very next verse. We read 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 1 chapter 8. Now let's look at chapter 9. And in fact, I want to read it from three different translations. This is the New International Version. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now this is from the, uh, the Living Bible. We felt we were doomed to die and saw how powerless we were to help ourselves. But that was good. For then we put everything into the hands of God who alone could save us, for he can even raise the dead. And then here's Eugene Peterson's the message. He just has a way of bringing stuff out so well. He said, we felt like we'd been sent to death row, that it was all over for us. As it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Instead of trusting in our own strength or wits to get out of it, we were forced to trust God totally. Not a bad idea, since he's the God who raises the dead. You see, our trials and sufferings are not necessarily a test of how much we can bear. They are not necessarily a test that's been sent by God. But they are places in which we can encounter God. So let me share with you two reasons. I could give you a a litany of reasons, but let me give you two as to why God allows us to experience suffering. First of all, it is to teach us to rely on Him. I have a confession. My flesh really values self-reliance. I want to believe that I can just man up and I can push through anything. But I was made to need God. And I'm never in more desperate shape than when I forget how desperately I need God. Because no matter what some televangelist might tell you, you can't live on the mountaintop forever. Paul discovered that. Uh, There's a passage, every time I read it, it just captures my imagination. 
It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is describing this event, and it's in the third person. It sounds like he's describing some kind of an out-of-body experience, where he talks about how he had been taken to the third heaven, to paradise. And he says, there were inexplicable things, things that there are not words to describe what it was like. Can you imagine the mountaintop that was? And he immediately follows that up by saying this, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Scholars have made feeble attempts to try to come up with what was this thorn in Paul's flesh. And some have said, well, it was malaria. Some have said, no, he, uh, or, or some have even su- suggested epilepsy. Some have said, well, maybe the malaria affected his eyesight, so maybe it was an eyesight issue. I'll be frank with you. I'm glad we don't know. And I'm glad we don't know because what it does is what Paul was going through, this thorn in the flesh, represents the things that you and I struggle with too. The things that we suffer through, the pain and adversity we face. And it does the same thing for us. It drives us to our dependency upon God. Now, don't miss how awesome God's sovereignty is in this, though. Catch this. God uses a satanic attack upon Paul. Now, Paul says that, right? He says that this was a messenger from Satan. Paul uses this satanic attack on, or God uses this satanic attack on Paul to protect Paul from falling to the same sin that Satan had fallen to, which is pride. Isn't that awesome, the way God works? And so in the depths of despair, Paul experienced a depth of grace that he could have never known in any other way. And we will never know how completely sufficient the grace of God is until every crutch is taken away from us and all we have left is God. And this is discovered in seasons of weakness in seasons of brokenness. God doesn't give us grace instead of weakness. God gives us grace in the midst of our weakness. He stands with us in our suffering. He doesn't stand off looking at us in our suffering. He's in the middle of it with us. So the second reason I believe God allows us to experience suffering is to comfort others. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul says, On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Have you ever heard the saying, hurting people hurt people? That is often true. But I think a more biblical approach to that would be hurting people can help other hurting people. Following Jesus is a team sport. Satan right now, particularly in the Western world, Satan is convincing Christians, he's winning the minds of Christians, convincing them that church is not necessary to be able to live the Christian life. 
And yet Paul wrote nearly all of his letters to churches. And the message of those letters is to remind them how much you need each other. If Satan can't convince us to be disobedient, he's satisfied to just convince us to be disconnected. Because he knows that you can't do the Jesus life alone. And so God offers grace through people. People who have been there. People who can understand. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And in this way, our scars can be redeemed as they're used for other people's blessings. You know, our scars become our stories. Beverly and I have scars we never, ever would have chosen. But those of you who have seen the talk she gave at Summit know how God has used the scars to bless people. And perhaps you're here today, you're visiting, maybe you're not really plugged into church, and maybe you're thinking, man, those church people have got it all together and I don't. And so you need to know that right now you are sitting among brokenness, you are sitting among weakness. And so I'm going to ask a favor this morning. I'm going to ask, I'm going to mention some more than you can handle kinds of things. And if this applies to you, be bold because you could very well be bringing blessing to somebody else that's here this morning. I'm going to ask you to just stand if this involves you and then be seated. You may have to stand several times because I'm going to give you seven of them. Okay? So, if you have recently lost a family member or a loved one, would you please stand? You know the pain, don't you? Thank you. You can be seated. If you or someone in your family has gone through the pain of a divorce, would you please stand? Oh, my goodness. And you know, sometimes we think that grief is only from death or something like that. Every one of you knows the grief that comes through divorce, don't you? Thank you. If you've struggled with an addiction, would you please stand? Thank you, brother. Thank you. You can be seated. If you or someone in your family has recently experienced financial stress or financial collapse even, would you please stand? There's quite a few of you. Thank you. If you or someone in your family now struggles with or has struggled with depression, would you please stand? And I'm joining you in that, okay, as I stand. Thank you. If you're a caretaker for an aging parent, would you please stand? It has its own struggles, doesn't it? Thank you. 
And finally, if you have a child or a grandchild that's in a dark place right now, would you please stand? And I know this, I know you're making yourself vulnerable to do this. Thank you. And God bless you and whoever it is that's in that darkness. I pray that they'll be delivered. But I want you to see that we are sitting in a room filled with hurting people, filled with weakness and brokenness. The scars can't be taken away, but those stories can be redeemed. They can be redeemed as we walk with others who are experiencing pain and suffering. Because faith is not just a system of do's and don'ts. And faith is not just a system of incentives and rewards. Faith is a lifelong journey of facing the struggles of this world and moving forward together in hope. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles, and I can't help but just see Paul kind of grinning as he wrote this. I mean, it's tongue-in-cheek. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. <laughs> our troubles hardly seem light and momentary at times, do they? But in light of a thousand million trillion years, they do. In the middle of our trials, sometimes the most difficult thing for us to do is to hang on to the eternal perspective. You see, I don't think Paul here is trying to minimize our affliction. What Paul is trying to do is maximize our perspective. Suffering doesn't get the last word. Praise God for that. Amen? Suffering does not get the last word. A day's coming when all suffering is going to be removed. But even today, our suffering can be redeemed. Because when life is more than we can handle, we discover that God's grace is more than we can imagine. Now, when we talk with people who are about to become Christians, we often tell them that God wants them to give him their all. And what we usually mean by that is God wants you to give him your talents. He wants you to give him your time. He wants you to give him your strengths. He wants you to give him your gifts. And that is all true. But have you ever considered God wants you to give him your weakness We're a disposable society. Weak, broken things, we throw them away. But God delights in using brokenness and weakness. Let your weakness become your witness. And then, like our great high priest, in doing so, we can learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Now, I think at this time you have elders that will be stationed throughout. Is that right? Uh, if you'd like to come, uh, go to one of those elders and their wives for prayer. Uh, if you'd like to respond this morning to be baptized into Christ, we would love to be witness to that. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of being with, here with you today. And I pray that your weakness might be used by God as a strength. Let's stand together and let's...